Hello and welcome to Louder Than Words, the podcast that's all about ideas and practices that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, we're talking about black history through the lenses of plays and literature, how hidden and lost voices are now being heard, how stories about particular historical events can help healing today, and how facing the ills of colonisation can open up stories of kindness and care. It's a great pleasure to welcome three distinguished writers and playwrights from the University of Essex, from the Departments of History and Literature and from the East 15 Acting School. Jack Peake and Jeremy Crickler here in the studio, Holly Maples, who will be dropping into the conversation in the middle. So let's start like this with Jack and Jeremy. You've both in your work created spaces for new voices, for new cultural understanding, for new stories. Tell us, why does this remain so important today? Jack. Well, I I think it's important to think about the way that we think about black history. We have, obviously, Black History Month in October, but it's important to think about beyond that month. Um, Black history, in a sense, remains something that's still marginalised. And my research has been important for making black literature, and in a sense, black history, which is derived through that literature important as well so making it relevant to the sorts of students that we teach at the university but also to wider academic and public uh, audiences. Jeremy. Um, Well Jules I would say that uh, the research that I was engaged in into the slave trade into a particular tragedy in the slave trade involving the the Zong slave ship uh, is crucial to today because, of course, the slave trade and the atrocities in it were, if you like, the original Black Lives Matter moment. And so exploring that, uh, both, of course, in its actuality and then transforming it into a play, uh, you know, became important in terms of disseminating that to a much wider public. Um, so that's really the kind of public rationale for that work. So we, we we use the term create voice, having voice, creating voice, giving voice, but also the space for that to happen. So let's let's go into that a bit. Jack, you're an expert in Caribbean and American literature, and you've written about the dense literary geography of Trinidad. Um, one aisle, many voices, um, some famed, some neglected. Tell us a bit about the impact of that kind of revealing um, within one particular kind of island culture. Yeah, well, it can be very interesting to focus on on one particular place. And, and I, my heritage, my mother's from Trinidad, so I always had this sort of interest in, in that particular place. And then I, I was struck by uh, various movements that had happened. So there was this beacon group in the 1930s that involved figures like C.L.R. James, who ends up writing this very important history of Haiti, uh, the Black Jacobins, which is really quite a seminal work of, of history, which is a kind of... Um, he was also a writer, so it relies on narrative techniques of fiction. And then I discovered, oh, he's written fiction as well, Minty Alley in, in the late 20s before travelling to England. So he he was one of the kind of main figures that, that, that drew uh, me to that area. Um, but I think by, by looking at the, the, the literature of Trinidad... I could see that there were relationships between what was going on in places uh, in the United States, which my latter research has, has looked at, uh, a kind of 
a de- decolonial moment that I was particularly interested in the 1920s, which I could start to see uh, mirrors of in places like New York. So that kind of opened up a new way of kind of thinking a little bit about these things as well. And did, did that then have, do you think that that then had an impact within Trinidad as well, as those things start to, those those different voices are featured, those different ways of understanding the world? So, so there was clearly a kind of literary impact at the time. Um, so this Beacon group brought together, um, there were Portuguese writers like um, Albert Gomes and Alfred Mendes, who I think is um, Sam Mendes's grandfather. So there was it, it brought together a group who probably were seen as a kind of literary elite, but but they crossed racial boundaries. And I think there was something happening in that sort of nineteen twenties thirties period, both politically and in a in a literary sense, that hadn't happened quite as as significantly in the nineteenth century. Now my work starts in the 19th century and moves through. But I would say there's something in that early 20th century where I think the interest in a kind of revisionist history starts to emerge in places like Trinidad and in places like Harlem and New York. So we'll we'll, we'll come back to kind of particular moments in history in, in, in a little bit, and maybe we'll kind of pick that up. But that's, that's, that's really interesting. So Jeremy, also, as an historian, you've written of the agrarian struggle and transformation in South Africa, um, of the kind of fears and violence that that, that kind of plagued a, a kind of a whole territory for a long period of time, and now the lovely play, The Pearl of the Sky of the Sea, um, about the 18th century British slave trade. So you just mentioned the the Zong slave ship mm-hmm. travelling to the Caribbean north of of Trinidad towards um, Jamaica. Tell us a bit about that kind of particular moment in history and how that as it kind of transferred into the play um well of course it's and it's totally fundamental to the history that uh, that jack writes about and the literary culture and everything that emerges from it i mean slavery the slave trade emancipation and i was actually very um pleased that my colleague and friend Jack mentioned uh, C.L.R. James because, interestingly enough, his great work of history, which is, as you correctly point out, also a fundamental work of literary imagination, which it absolutely is, you know, with heroes and villains and an incredible narrative drive. Um, that was first written as a play. It, You know, the, the first version of what became The, the Black Jacobin uh, the the Black Jacobins was actually written as a play, which was put on in London with Paul Robeson in the starring role. I mean, you couldn't get get better better than that. Um, so uh, C. L. R. James has been you know huge huge figure for for me for me as well. But um, you know this people forget the absolute centrality of the Caribbean. Uh, you know, both in terms of the, the the formation of Atlantic culture as a whole, but also in terms of the history of that time. You know, in in the late 18th century, places like Jamaica and Trinidad were much more important to the world economy than the, than the USA. You know, much you know in terms of their contribution to GDP, the way they were plugged into the into the world e- economy, and I don't think it's it's accidental that this tragedy of the Zong slave ship, in which 130, from which 130 slaves were thrown, murdered, and then insurance claimed on them. I don't think it's it's accidental that it happens in the Caribbean, and that uh, it blows back 
into the UK, in, first into UK law, and then becomes a core celeb for the for the uh, abolitionists. Well, let, let's kind of pause a moment then and just just uh, talk about this thing, a bald and stark reminder of slavery history. So we can kind of talk around it and write about it and remember it. It's easy for it to seem like old history in some way um, and therefore perhaps irrelevant. Perhaps uh, just speaking for some uh, parts of, of, of kind of the industrialized world. And yet in a 200 year period, 12 million people moved from Africa, perhaps one to two million um Dead on the trip, as you've described, Jeremy, in, in, in the book. Cheap labor, agricultural commodities playing into a kind of globalization kind of early on. What would you say then are the key reasons for remembering the slave trade and the impact on people then and now? I mean, there are kind of two aspects of that. Mm-hmm. But but the, the relevance today um, uh, is is um, super important. But what would you say about that, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of things. So clearly, I think for for black writers uh, and black historians, there's an aspect of a, a history that has been largely ignored, right? Um, historically, if we were looking over the last, uh, going back to the sort of 18th and 19th century, and it takes someone like C.L.R. James to actually talk about the first successful black rebellion, Haiti, for a history of Haiti to then be given prominence. So I, th- I think there's an aspect of representational um, significance for those whose history they feel is is embedded in the legacy of slavery for good or for ill. Um, and then I think there are a, a broader sense of acknowledgement that, that this history happened, that, it, that it's real, and that it still has a legacy. And I guess this is the interesting thing that movements like Black Lives Matter are sort of tracking the the relationship between current modern day exploitation in places like the United States, the the relationship between the state, the police, black people, that there's still a relationship that you can track through, which is to do with a kind of legacy of race relations, which you can trace back to the plantation. Um, so I think that's that's one kind of aspect anyway. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's right, and I also think that uh, you know so so many of our cultures have been shaped by uh, what we might call the the culture of slave emancipation. I mean, if if you think of the whole set of musical forms in the Caribbean or in in the USA, uh, they can be traced in some sense to the uh, the culture the the culture of autonomous cultural resistance that emerged amongst among slaves and then the um, ripples of that after emancipation so you know you only <clears throat> I know perhaps I'm I'm kind of referring to my own generation's music but you only have to listen to you know Bob Marley's music to realize that slavery is actually you know it's present as a kind of central theme with within it so the, there's that that's that's important and of course the point that Jack makes about um, black lives matter um, it really does have a connection to this original uh, atrocious um, position of black people in you know, I would say Western culture generally. And the other point we, we mustn't forget is that although, as you point out, in some sense, 
the slave trade and slavery are remote because it's a couple of hundred years ago. What we shouldn't forget is that the culture of which we're, of which we're a part has been shaped uh, it actually by, by centuries of uh, Africans and black people fitting into it in a particular way. And that doesn't get undone just because emancipation ends. Mm. Oh, sorry, slavery ends, I yeah, should say. Th- right, indeed, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, and in, it's, it, I mean, it kind of strikes me that, that at the time of the problems, as it were, these things are happening, slavery is kind of emerging um, in, in the kind of couple of hundred years before industrialization in, in Europe, which then leads to a kind of modernization of, 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 of the world in a kind of different way. It is a, an earlier phase and so must play, play through. So at the time of the problems, there are campaigners, activists, trying to change things and those voices are often missed so one of the key characters in your play Jeremy is um, Dido Mm -hmm. um, who was a real person and you imagine her to be a black abolitionist Mm -hmm. Um, and we know about Wilberforce uh, somebody who comes from Hull and he's a kind of you know major political character and has great importance and yet there are all kinds of other people who are not accepting the status as it was Mm -hmm. or the status quo wasn't quite like that, but but who are actively trying to change mm-hmm. things. No, and in fact, it shouldn't it shouldn't be forgotten that the, the Zong case, which was in some ways the first cause célèbre of the um, abolitionist of the early abolitionist movement in terms of law cases, uh, that wouldn't have even been known about had not a black abolitionist, uh, Gustavo Vassa, you know, more commonly known as Equiano, had had he not uh, alerted. Uh, the more well-connected white abolitionists uh, like Granville Sharp to to the, the, the fact of it. So although um, on, on one level, and as I explain in the after to the play, I've deliberately uh, given attributes to Dido that didn't exist in reality because she was a kind of servant stroke, niece stroke, quasi-daughter to Lord Mansfield, this judge, and she wouldn't have challenged him in the way that a black abolitionist of that time would have uh, I nevertheless you know I kind of um, I, I I got her to stand in for these people who were key to the whole case but who have not been given a voice the people who've been given a voice are all white you know it's uh, Granville Sharp Wilberforce and others uh, but actually it was black abolitionists who made the case possible in the first instance they wouldn't have got a shorthand writer into the court to take down these details had they not been alerted to the to the facts of the case by Gustavo Vassa. Mm. Yeah, I, I, just to add to that, I think, I mean, the, the number of black figures who are also interested in kind of restoring to history some of these black voices that get lost, and, and as well as having, if you like, uh, abolitionists, we've also got, if you like, rebel leaders, right, which which uh, history has, has not uh, fully accounted for. And, and one of the figures I'm interested in, actually, is this figure called Arthur Schomburg. He's a Puerto Rican... Um, he is a bibliophile and he did, he uh, donates a, a number of books to the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library and, and has now got a centre named after him. Uh, and he writes a very interesting article called The Negro Digs Up His Past, which goes into this publication uh, edited by Alain Locke in 1925. And he says, history must restore what slavery took away. And interestingly, in that article, he talks about a number of leaders, Henry Christophe in uh, Haiti, who was 
uh, a leader there, Baron de Vasti, and he mentions just a, a ne- number of names from history, anti-slavery leaders like Denmark uh, Vesey, David Walker, uh, rebel leaders who are also white as well, um, abolitionists like Frederick Douglass. So you get a sense that he's trying to restore to the record here are actual black names and figures who were against slavery, abolitionists, and that we must do the work. Um, it's interesting that people, he was a colleague of Carter Woodson, who basically starts Black History Week, which we, I would say is the, the, four, the predecessor of Black History Month. And Carter Woodson is, is not allowed to be, I, I think he's fenced out of joining the American Historical Association. So there's a sense that those who are interested in being professional historians, and some of them trained, some of them autodidacts, want to have a voice, but they're also fenced out of being you know, professional scholars in, in the field. So this is it strikes me this is kind of writing about diversity so it's 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 not saying um that voice is wrong and this voice is right and we're just going to change from wrong to right it's about saying well just open up the space be creative about multiple perspectives on place not everybody's going to agree on events or hopes or ways of living but diversity in of itself is a good thing because we hear those different perspectives and then something kind of creative can happen on the back of that so to a, a direct question does that do we think that that can improve lives creating that kind of space um uh some might argue it's just noise um uh or can we kind of push that into saying that diversity actually makes things better for people um i mean it could be in the political space or it could be in the in the home i mean kind of right the way across the, the across the sphere or in fact the schools uh so to to give an, an example, uh, what we've done with with my play is to match up dialogue with particular historical documents that they were, if you like, in, inspired by, and uh, we've we basically created um, a set of exercises that uh, school students in in year eight can go through, uh, which allows them to you know, empathize, if you like, with the uh, position of, of slaves, but also to to understand the the kind of regime if you that normalized atrocity. And uh, from what I've been told by um, people who are who are specialists in this, this is um, really a kind of much better way of broaching very, very difficult material. Uh, that that students otherwise find uh, very very difficult to to access, particularly uh, when some of the students are are black in the in the class, and uh, you know people get either nervous or they just get uh, embarrassed, or they get or they just um, you know for reasons that are actually respectable because they they're very very sensitive. They don't want to they don't want to contribute, and uh, the the play. Um, allows those voices to be accessed and those feelings to be expressed. So literally creating a stage, a platform yeah. to have those different voices yeah. um, and the opportunity for people to contribute as they as they see fit. I mean, is that is that the way you see it as well, Jack? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think, again, I, I guess I'm thinking about some of the, the figures in the, the 1920s in places like New York who were trying to, if you like, open up the archive. 
and the dangers are if if you only look at the look to the same voices from the past you kind of, there's a danger of repeating um we, t- we 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 seek the same authorities we seek the same kind of vision and so i think people in the sort of 1920s period were certainly trying to if you like decolonize history literature at that particular point in fact there's a whole movement that was called the negro renaissance and t- today we tend to call it the harlem renaissance that was about kind of trying to to take a kind of cultural moment and and make black literature writing and art and history kind of important and so it it didn't it doesn't always require a huge amount of work but it requires a new kind of focus in which you say actually there were other figures who were involved uh, at this particular historical moment who have been overlooked and i think that was one of the key things that many were doing in that period um i'll give one example and then we can maybe move on but um so for example alain Locke, who becomes this important doyen of the movement if you like um he's he's even made master of ceremonies at this very important dinner in 1924 in the civic club in new york and in one article he writes in this journal um the survey graphic he's very aware that that modernists like picasso are suddenly interested in african art uh and he he basically says that we should also be <laughs> interested if you like as as a as a black group in this this art and so he's very clever at connecting what was suddenly becoming hugely important to modernists and and cubist cubism or if you like that movement to the sorts of discussions he was having with african americans and afro caribbean folk in places like new york so well, let, let's let's have have a um, a break here and have a um, a word with um, Holly Maples, um, playwright, actor, and director from East Fifteen, whose play "Breaking the Silence" picks up on some of these things we've been talking about. Here's the voices, creates the voices of freed slaves, um, is set um, in London, um, and is around the black leaders of the abolition movement, and in particular the female leaders. Holly, could you tell us a little bit about the play and its impact upon audiences? Sure. Um, yeah. So our show, uh, it's um, taken from verbatim uh, um, testimony um, from both freed slaves, uh, abolitionists uh, and uh, other uh, abolitions of the 18th century to early 19th century. And uh, basically it replicates uh, like the first abolitionist meeting uh, from 17, the 1780s. Uh, though it's kind of fictional in that we've got a lot of characters in that meeting who wouldn't have been there. Uh, and what it does, uh, it kind of, I think, through the abolitionist words themselves, and our goal was to let the, peop- let the past speak. Um, they talk about social justice. They talk about personal responsibility. They have the narratives of people like Aluado, Equiano, and Mary Prince of their experiences as slaves are used as a radical act of abolition. And to get people to think of their own experience in relation to injustice. And, uh, and then also talk about what it was like to be on the Middle Passage. And what it's like to be living as a house servant in the West Indies. Uh, and the kind of brutality daily that they experienced. And so it, it's very kind of raw and um, charged, I would say. It's charged with testimony. It's charged with experiences of your own responsibility, and it's charged by the sites themselves. For we performed uh, again in October 2021 
at other heritage historic churches with um, uh, freed slave graves um, or with close ties to the abolitionists. One of them is where Granville Sharp, another abolitionist, was buried. And the abolitionists used as a tactic their, uh, their own experience, their own moment of, uh, for the white abolitionists, for example, of waking up to the injustice and never being able to sleep again until they um, helped stop that injustice. And the abolitionists who were uh, freed slaves were saying, no, it's our story that needs to be told. And so we were kind of allowing the different voices to not only speak, but challenge each other certain kinds of microaggressions they might experience, certain kinds of moments of casual sexism, for example, as Wilberforce was quite sexist and didn't really want the, the female abolitionists to take leadership roles or to be large advocates, even though they raised a lot of the money <laughs> uh, for the uh, abolitionist cause. So all of this um, in and amongst the audience uh, created a kind of relationship of the audience as abolitionists. And what I found very interesting is often after each performance, people would stay talking to us for an hour, uh, almost as long as the show itself, sharing their own stories, their own experiences, either of um, their own experiences of racism or their own experience in, in wrestling with these, this challenging history. So they were, that's a, very interesting. So people were seeing the play, which is clearly about a time in history, as you've described, and, and its kind of foundational importance and the tensions and pressures there um, amongst the, the known voices and the, and the much less known, and yet also then able to transfer that. I mean, obviously, that's the power of the play, but transfer it into their um, modern, current, contemporary um, experiences of the world so that kind of translation is happening in the audience and, and and what is it they're saying when they're chatting to you and the the cast um for an hour after the show has uh, uh, has gone on are they what 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 what's the kind of tone and the content of their contributions i mean i think it depends on the place uh, that was one thing that was also very interesting. Of course, people have a relationship to place. So Liverpool, very, very different than an experience, say, of Hampstead um, in their relation to the slave trade. Uh, and um, what was interesting, uh, for example, in Liverpool, we had this group who are um, the Liverpool Slavery um, Research Group, and they meet up every weekend. A lot of them are people of um, Afro-Caribbean heritage uh, who are very... Uh, interested and also want to keep the memory of um, slavery that built the city of Liverpool alive. And so they go to sites, they do a lot of, and, and so some of them came up to tell us the story of their families. And also they were excited to learn about, for example, Mary Prince, who a lot of them did not know about as well as Eloado Equiano, um, and uh, ask questions about um, the kind of history, but then also share their own experiences of Liverpool, share their own thoughts on our responsibility to the past and our responsibility to the knowledge of the slave trade that is, is often, I would say, underrepresented in Britain um, and to slavery and, and how it built Britain. Uh, um, this also happened in Bristol. Bristol was very charged. It was a really exciting and interesting audience um, because, of course, they've just had the um, big Black Lives Matter protests and the tearing down of Colston statue. So they were sharing with me a lot about how Bristol was um, 
built by slavery and how it's everywhere. Um, whereas other places, uh, some people had heritage, some people had their own stories. Some people were talking about growing up in Britain in the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, in Hampstead, we actually had a the next day, a talk about just about social justice and um, racism in Britain and ways to change it and ways to kind of move on and how we need to think about education differently. Um, in uh, in Soham, which is where Equiano was married to a local girl from Ely, uh, we performed for 600 school children, not all at once. So we had some at uh, all over four days, pretty much, and um, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and then uh, 12 and 13-year-olds. And what I was surprised by was the play is verbatim 18th century language. You know, it's it's not it's not really meant for it's not meant to to uh, for children. I thought, but it actually was very successful there. Um, and it's quite a disadvantaged area. And so one group of nine-year-olds kind of stayed afterwards raising their hand and talk, asking questions about, well, why didn't they keep them with their parents? Well, what were they doing in slavery and, and kind of having a lesson on slavery? And then also saying things like, we believe in equality. We believe in equality of race and gender. We believe Black Lives Matter. And, and that was very exciting. Um, and they were just a lovely, lovely group of nine-year-olds. <laughs> and so do you think there's something Holly, there about this kind of play um, with the subject matter benefiting from, as it were, going on the road to different locations where the audience is mostly local and therefore bringing something, their engagement with the play is bringing something different, whether you're in Manchester or Bristol or so or Hampstead. Um, and that's a better thing to do than to put it on in one location and just run the show for a period in the West End, for example. Nice, lovely thing to do. Um, but you would get something very different by putting it in a particular place because you're you're helping people to understand their own circumstances through the play as well. Definitely. And we changed the script to uh, a little bit to really talk about the here, about that place. Um, I, we, I made programs for each location that talked about their own history and relationship both in the church and um, that we were at and then also the town and uh, the area itself. Um, as an example of that, Sunderland Point, which is a very small kind of place cut off the tide um, in uh, um, Lancaster uh, area. Um, so it's it's cut off by the tide twice a day. It, it was a important shipping location for quite a small amount of time, and people would use it and then go up to other areas on the coast as a part of the slave trade um, in the 18th century. And then um, it eventually kind of became just a very small marshland area um, that doesn't have a lot of communities. And we performed in a mission church there, which has become a heritage site. And that is where Sambo's grave is. And um, uh, Sambo's probably not the boy's name, a 17-year-old slave who, um, he had been, uh, again, trafficked from the West Indies, I mean, from Africa um, to the West Indies. And then his master brought him back um, to Britain when he was there on a, um, a shipping, I mean, a buying trip or whatever he was doing. And he, uh, they arrived in Sunderland Point and he left him there and then went on to Lancaster. And unfortunately, the boy died of heartbreak he, and sorrow. I mean, he, uh, or they think he did. Um, he was uh, 
he was sad and confused and thought he was abandoned by his master and uh, crawled into a shed and died. Uh, so it's very, very sad. Um, uh, but his grave is right on the edge of Sunderland Point. And that was amazing. We did two performances there and it felt like the whole community came. Uh, and again, getting the community involved, the churches were also very important. Not only the vicars, but the other people, the community who ran the churches because they were on side. So they got the community on side. And though um, we had really extraordinary performances in places like Bristol and Liverpool, I think it was the smaller locations that were really, really meaningful because people don't go there and you're about them and, and um, getting them to engage with their own history, which was the whole point of our project. So let's come back and talk a little bit about decolonization the, the, of the curriculum of public spaces, especially statues, of museum artifacts, returning them to source. There's a whole range of initiatives that, that seem to be trying to say, we care, we wish to make things better. How do you look at some of these things? And, and um, you know, we sit within a, a, a higher education sector, within a university. We're seeking also to think about how properly to decolonize the curriculum. But it's part of a whole range of other efforts mm-hmm. um, that are trying to remove the bads, but also to put some goods back in those kind of spaces. Jack, what's, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I guess a number of thoughts. So I, I, th- I welcome the, the, the move to decolonise the curriculum as, as we talk about it. But I, th- I also think we need to be careful about how we we do it. So my I, when I have conversation with colleagues, I think, well, I don't want this to just be a, a tick box exercise. right? I want it to be meaningful. Um but some colleagues may feel as if there is some sort of pressure on them. But I do think it's important that we think about, you know, what has been neglected, which is which is basically there, which doesn't require an awful lot of kind of, if you like, archaeological digging, that just requires perhaps a little bit of brushing off the dust or, or blowing it off. So I, I think within the humanities, within history and literature, um, it's th- there's a lot there. There's a there's a huge history and there's a huge amount of writing. Um, I also think one of the interesting things is how far do you push it? So certain things, certain historians, like I mentioned, Carter G. Woodson, those who are sort of kept outside of an, the academy. So it might require us to look a little bit beyond, if you like, traditional scholarship sometimes or even traditional forms of writing. So one of the figures I'm quite interested in, Joel Rogers, who was a Jamaican kind of self-taught historian, wrote these kind of popular histories. And he, he wrote, um, he, he produced with an illustrator graphic newspapers about black history. So they were almost comic book, non-fiction mm-hmm. his, history sketches. And graphic novels are now a, a, a great a, a great kind of modern phenomenon, but there they were they're, they're happening they're, at the time. Yeah, yeah. happening in the, in the sort of 30s and 40s, I think, through the Pittsburgh, anyway, Pittsburgh um, newspaper. So, so I, think, I think there are ways in which we could think really imaginatively about what's, what's available in the archive, and that might require going outside, again, of traditional avenues of thought. Um, but it might be different, might look quite different if you're decolonising the curriculum in the sciences. And and I have heard colleagues say, well, well, where do I find the the black scientist who did this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's still work, I think, that can be done there. Um, but anyway, anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what is, what is crucial is 
you know, foregrounding the neglected voices, you know, of which there there are many, and also of which there are many that that people gain an enormous amount from beyond decolonization. Uh, so to give an, an example, I mean, one of the courses that I run is is uh, about the fictions of empire. And, you know, on such such a course uh, in which we take particular, particular literary texts and we examine their contexts, the ways that the historian can use them and so on, um, I think you've, you've got to have um, what I'll call the usual suspects. You've got to have Kipling, you've got to have Ryder Haggard uh, and people like that because they uh, were immensely influential and they also help uh, us to explore racial attitudes and how those attitudes were widely disseminated and found their ways into Hollywood and places like that. And then there are the more critical voices like uh, Doris Lessing, but... Then, of course, there are the, the great uh, African voices of decolonization, Chinua Achebe, Wole Soyenke, Nguge Wationgo, uh, and numerous, numerous others. And uh, from, my, from my own experience of teaching uh, these various writers, um, the, the, the students gain a sort of immense understanding of the imperial writers by beginning to look at literary genres through the eyes of the uh, post-colonial writers. Their own, from their own place, as it were. Exactly, yes, which is what you've been talking about, Jack, as well. Well, um, kind of looking back, um, at the end of 2021, a really big moment for a another small island in the in the Caribbean for Barbados um, a population the size of Hull um, the uh, the territory the size of the Isle of Wight um, and now kind of symbolic in in some sort of sense that um, it's I'm not sure that we have a correct term for it it's it was already independent and now it's kind of fully independent of the old empire as you were talking about um, Jeremy there but a flower blooms um, uh, and a space kind of opens up um, and I remember walking with a local group in uh, Barbados um, uh, going on a visit to walk through sugar fields and through plantations in in kind of relentless heat and humidity for just a few hours rather than kind of living in it and you get a, a real sense of just actually how difficult and barbaric it was at the time and now calmly and smoothly Barbados kind of emerges into a into a new kind of space um uh, I mean, that's kind of that's fantastic isn't it politically important politically i guess yeah important and it's it's an interesting moment isn't it to to move away from having the queen as a symbolic figurehead i guess it's a kind of symbolic uh, decolonization, um, which still has some significance for the for the state for for Barbados itself, I think is also interesting because historically, if correct me if I'm wrong, Jeremy, wasn't Barbados called Little England and was seen as, if you like, highly <laughs> uh, aligned with the interests of of empire, so so very loyal to Britain out of the British Empire, uh, and and in that sense, um, somewhat symbolic that Barbados therefore takes takes this step. Um, I also found it very very interesting that Prince Charles in the I was going to call it the abdication speech that's the wrong <laughs> term, but the uh, you know full decolonization speech uh, referred in in a very uh, direct way to the legacy of slavery, the atrocity of of slavery, and I think that what that shows is that the whole 
decolonizing the mind movement and Black Lives Matter has actually really reached into the establishment. And, and created shifts or, you know, each. So we've been talking about history here and yet we bring it back into current modern day. The making of future history mm-hmm. is the events that are happening, um, whether it's individual voices writing, whether it's um, a kind of whole stages of political change for a, for a single country like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you're looking forward, um, does do these opportunities, do these kind of um, uh, ratchets of change, do they make you feel kind of confident that we might get to terms with some of this? Um, I mean, we're not going to solve the problems of history, but we're talking, we've been talking about creating the space, the mm. platform, the possibilities for engagement, whether it's through plays or literature, for those, for voices to be heard and for people today to hear them mm-hmm. and to feel somewhat changed by them. How would, how would you look forward from here? Yeah, I, I think we're at a very interesting moment. I mean, I, I think of the sort of post-war by that, the Second World War, the post-war movement, you know, the 1950s and 60s being an actual moment of decolonization in which places like the Caribbean became independent of, you know, old empires. Um, And we could argue that we're post that, but we're at a moment where we're questioning institutions and the way that organisations function. So if you like, states have become independent. Okay, but, but I guess moving towards something like decolonizing the mind I guess to get back to Bob Marley um, you know how do you liberate your mind and uh, one of the the next stages is, is what do we do so I, th- I think there's hope that that we are we've been in this moment maybe for the last decade or so in which we're asking these questions and that that is a, a hugely positive thing I think for society yeah and I I don't know if Jack would would agree because he's actually closer to the generation of the youth than than I am but my my feeling is that uh if you look at youth culture um there are all kinds of positive signs in the sense of you know young people find racism kind of weird I'm not saying everywhere but there there is really a sense in which people think did people really think that and I think um there are signs of real change there. Fantastic. Well, you've been called a youth, Jack, which is which must feel good. And Jeremy, we, 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 we can join in that space as well. Uh, Marvellous. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your contributions today. Um, really helpful to hear the space for those voices, but also thinking how things may change in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.